Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm sharing with you an article from the Future of Foundation. <laughs> Let me try that again. It's FFF.org, the Future of Freedom Foundation. Matthew Harwood is the author, and he's talking about gun ownership and individual right, referencing David Harsanyi's book, First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun. And I like that he has some great historical perspective on this. It's very, uh, it's, it's very powerful, especially when you consider that what made the Revolutionary War happen, the shot that kicked it off, came as a result of government, legitimate government, trying to take away the arms and ammo of the people. And he says, as Harsanyi accounts, there was good reason that disarming the colonists helped induce rebellion and then revolution. It violated their rights as Englishmen under English common law. For example, the English Bill of Rights of 1689, an inspiration for our Bill of Rights, limited the power of the crown to disarm the populace, anchoring the protection in the true, ancient, and indubitable rights and liberties of the kingdom's people. Now, the Second Amendment would guarantee that same individual right a little more than a century later on another continent, no matter what the prohibitionists disingenuously argue otherwise. As constitutional scholar and Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Leonard W. Levy put it in his Origins of the Bill of Rights, quote, believing that the amendment does not authorize an individual's right to keep and bear arms is wrong. The right to bear arms is an individual right, end quote. Now, Harsanyi explains why. He says, while it's convenient for contemporary advocates of gun control to claim that evidence for individual gun rights is still inconclusive, What we do know for certain is that not a single soul in the provisional government or at the Second Continental Congress or any delegate at the Constitutional Convention ever argued against the idea of individuals owning a firearm. Not a single militia leader asked his men to hand over their firearms after the town's drills had ended. So people interested in a deep scholarly rebuttal of the collective right theory of gun ownership need to go elsewhere, though. Though Harsanyi does a fine job of debunking it for the interested average reader, most of First Freedoms about the men who made the gun, a central pillar of American identity and culture. We're talking men like Sam Colt or John Browning or Eugene Stoner. But even then, Harsanyi's exploration of the men and their times demonstrates that guns were ubiquitous and considered a critical and prized possession for the defense of life, liberty, and property, repudiating the notion that guns weren't a mainstay of of American life since its founding. During the colonial era, probate records show that guns were commonplace in American homes, contradicting the claims of some historians that American gun culture didn't arise until the mid-19th century. Recent studies show that male estates usually had more guns than other mundane items, such as books, chairs, or even Bibles. The records also document that the guns were in good condition, demonstrating that the owner took good care of them. Harsanyi also notes that these records probably undercount the number of people who owned guns because the weapons were handed from one relative, friend, or neighbor to another without any record of the transfer. After the Revolution, American citizens and immigrants went west, eventually colonizing the entire continent through the force of their arms. The peopling of the West gave birth to a new culture, disrupted the cultures of the American Indian, and ultimately created the most dynamic economy in the world, writes Harsanyi. Guns would be a vital tool in this project, not only as a means of self-defense and war, but for hunting, trading, and exploration. 
Now, when it comes to the American war with the Indians, the progressive left should pay special attention to the gun control policies of the time. American governments regulated the gun trade with Indian tribes to ensure the settlers maintained the upper hand when it came to firepower. Harsanyi reports that in 1837, the Office of Indian Affairs restricted trade with tribes to a pound of lead for ammunition to make not less than 45 nor more than 100 shots and must be of a length and weight corresponding properly with the size of the ball. And in December 1890, in an example Harsanyi doesn't include in the book, the 7th Cavalry went to the Lakota camp to disarm the tribesmen. In the process, a gun went off, and U.S. soldiers proceeded to massacre the Lakotas in what became known as the Wounded Knee Massacre. But for those who still believe the gun is a unique tool of American oppression, consider the Sharps rifle of the mid-1800s. One of the nicknames given to the rifle was Beecher's Bible because of Henry Ward Beecher, an abolitionist minister. In 18, 1856, before the Civil War, Beecher told a New York newspaper that sending Sharps rifles to the militant anti-slavery free staters in Kansas was a truly moral agency, and there was more moral power in one of those instruments, so far as the slaveholders of Kansas were concerned, than in a hundred Bibles. Dang. Harsanyi also claims, debunks the claims, rather, that the Wild West was bloody anarchy, noting that many of the range wars were more the product of journalists' imaginations to sell papers back east. For example, the Associated Press reported that Dodge City, Kansas, had broken out in open warfare. The casualties of this war, Harsanyi reports, were zero. Ogala, Nebraska, earned the nickname Gomorrah of the Trail for its violence. Between 1875 and 1884, it registered six killings. Instead, the men and women on the frontier owned guns to hunt for food and protect their families and property from criminals. The majority of men and women who trekked westward in the second half of the 19th century did so to find prosperity and peace. And Arsanyi writes, most never fired or even had to point their gun at another human being. So what is the right interpretation? Well, in 2008, a 5-4 decision in the District of Columbia v. Heller, the Supreme Court finally put to rest the intellectually dishonest argument that the Second Amendment did not guarantee an individual's right to bear arms. The justices, led by Antonin Scalia, however, did say that it was and did not say it was an unfettered right. Government could regulate guns and gun ownership, but the majority upheld what should be common sense. Both historically and philosophically, the right to bear arms should be understood as resistance to either private lawlessness or the depredations of a tyrannical government or a threat from abroad. In other words, anyone advocating the complete abolition of gun ownership in America, whether out of ignorance or malice, should be seen for what he is, a threat to the right of self-defense the most natural right a human being possesses. And as Harsanyi aptly shows, without the right of self-defense, all other rights are null and void because a government bent on disarming law-abiding citizens has shown that it no longer trusts them. And that's neither limited government nor self-government. It's tyranny. This is from Matthew Harwood. I'll have this article included in the show notes, included on the podcast I think that was a really worthwhile historical recounting and, and without, you know, getting into all the politics. Well, and then the NRA came along and everybody became a gun owner. I think I like to, to think of firearms as like a life preserver on a boat. If you saw stormy weather approaching, would you throw your life preserver overboard just in case, you know, you needed to get rid of some weight? No, you'd probably keep it close at hand. And I would use the same analogy today. 
that uh, if, if you see stormy seas on the horizon or maybe even the seas are starting to churn around you wherever you are, probably a good idea to keep that life preserver close by because that's what it is, is a life preserver. I'm going to touch on this as we go to break. Uh, We'll come back to it. Civil liberties groups now are warning of a major threat to online freedoms and First Amendment rights if a leaked draft of a Trump administration edict dubbed by critics as a censor the Internet executive order that would give powerful federal agencies far reaching powers to pick and choose what kind of Internet material is and is not acceptable is allowed to go into effect. Been hearing a couple of rumors about this for the last few days. According to CNN, which says it obtained a copy of the draft, the new rule calls for the FCC to develop new regulations clarifying how and when the law protects social media websites when they decide to remove or suppress content on their platforms. Though it's still in its early stages and subject to change, That draft order apparently also calls for the Federal Trade Commission to take those new policies into account when it investigates or files lawsuits against misbehaving companies. Let's talk about why this may be a singularly bad idea to make government become the arbiter of what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable on the Internet. We'll be back after these messages. Credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. Just want to give a quick shout out to Ammo.com and thank them for being one of our sponsors and invite you to go to Ammo.com. It's really that simple. Ammo.com. Not only if, uh, if you are a shooter or someone who believes in preparedness will you find some great deals on ammo and a great selection, but I love their library. Yeah, they, they don't just carry, you know, ammo for rifles, shotguns, handguns, you know, rimfire ammo. They carry intellectual ammo as well. And the best part is the intellectual ammo is uh, there for the taking. Click on it, read the articles. But when you buy ammo, make sure at, at checkout you click on the little drop down menu and it will ask you, about a number of freedom-supporting organizations. Which one would you like to direct some love towards? And Loving Liberty will be one of those. So visit ammo.com. Let them know that their message is reaching your ears. Coming back to this article here on a leaked draft of what appears to be a proposal, an executive order that would limit free speech on the Internet. Now, I take this with a grain of salt. This is from truthout.org, but whether it's from Trump or whether it's uh, from some other person or just even within the faceless bureaucracy, that's a pretty spooky idea that maybe we need to get government more involved here and we need to uh, make sure that someone is regulating how social media platforms or websites decide to remove or suppress content on their platforms. That's not something I want government doing. Not even a little bit. The article here on Truth Out says, following reporting on the leaked draft, free speech and online advocacy groups raised alarm about the troubling and far-reaching implications of the Trump plan if it was put into effect by executive degree. 
Evan Greer, director of Fight for the Future, said it's hard to put into words how mind-bogglingly absurd this executive order is. In the name of defending free speech, it would allow mass government censorship of online content. In practice, it means whatever parties in power can decide what speech is allowed on the Internet. End quote. Well, that's a pretty big concern. And I would ask you if, if you find yourself, you know, wanting to justify, well, well, but, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, censorship of uh, views from the right. This would help to fix that. I don't think it would. I think all it would do is it would open the doors to where when Trump isn't president. And look, like him or hate him, there is a day coming when he will not be president. Whoever steps in there, if they if they can legislate by executive order. You better believe it's going to be used against, you know, views that you would likely agree with. Don't put that government, don't don't put that hand, that uh, power in government's hands in the first place. Yeah, there may be some challenges right now. I mean, look, it, it frustrates me to see people deplatformed. Or actually, what what troubles me is there. There's a very clear double standard on Twitter, where people on the left can call for violence or can say, you know, horrible, derogatory things about people who are on the political right. But you so much as post a humorous meme that uh, ridicules something on the left, and boom, you're locked up. It's a very clear double standard. I don't like it either, but I don't want government stepping in there and using coercion to accomplish what persuasion is going to have to do. Does that make sense? People coerced are never convinced to change their minds. They may go along with it just so you stop beating them with the baton, but they're not convinced. Persuasion is the only way to bring someone around to where they will consider and choose voluntarily to embrace a differing point of view. And government is not about persuasion. Government is more about, we're going to, uh, we're going to force you to do this for your own good. Don't give them that opportunity. All right, I'm going to shift gears. There's a couple of other articles I want to get in here, and uh, I'm, I'm saving the one on the average farm being in debt, $1.3 million for last. <sighs> Speaking of free speech, okay, I'm, I'm going to tread out onto the thin ice here. This is an article from William J. Astor, America's Militarized Profession of Faith in Wars and Weapons We Trust. And he gives some background here, saying when he was a teenager in the 1970s, he says, I looked to the heavens, to God and Christianity, as arbitrated by the Catholic Church, and to the soaring warbirds of the U.S. military, which I believed kept us safe. To my mind, then, they were classic manifestations of American technological superiority over the godless communists. Now, he says, with all of its scandals, especially when it came to priestly sexual abuse, he said, I lost my faith in the Catholic Church. Indeed, I would later learn that there had been a predatory priest in my own parish when I was young, a grim young man who made me uneasy at the time, though back then I couldn't have told you why. As for these warbirds, like so many Americans, I thrilled to their roar at air shows, but never really gave any thought to the bombs they were dropping in Vietnam and elsewhere, to the lives they were ending or to the destruction they were causing. Nor at that age did I even consider their enormous cost in dollars or just how much Americans collectively sacrificed to have top cover, whether of the warplane or godly kind. 
Now, he says, there were good and devoted priests in my Catholic diocese. There were good and devoted public servants in the U.S. military. Admittedly, he says, I never seriously considered the priesthood, but I did sign up for the Air Force, surprising myself by serving in it for 20 years. Still, both institutions were then and remain deeply flawed. Both seek, in a phrase the Air Force has long used, global reach, global power. Both remain hierarchies that regularly promote true believers to positions of authority. Both demand ultimate obedience. Both sweep their sins under the rug. Neither can pass an audit. Both are characterized by secrecy. Both seem remarkably immune to serious efforts at reform. And both, above all, know how to preserve their own power even as they posture and proselytize about serving a higher one. Now, he says, I'd like to focus on America's holy church, the U.S. military with all its wars and weapons, its worshipers and wingmen, together with its vision of world or global dominant dominance, rather, that just happens to include end of world scenarios as apocalyptic as any of those imaginable of any imaginable church of true believers. Now, he says, I'm refer- referring, of course, to our country's staggeringly large arsenal of weapons of mass destruction just now being updated. I guess the term is modernized to the tune of something like 1.7 trillion for decades to come. Show me your budget and I will tell you what you value is a telling phrase linked to Joe Biden. And in those same terms, he says there's no question what the American government values most. It's military. To the tune of almost $1.5 trillion over the next two years, though the real number may well exceed $2 trillion, Republicans and Democrats agree on little these days, except support for spending on that military, its weaponry, its wars to come, and related national security state outlays. He says, in this context, I've been wondering what kind of profession of faith we might have to recite. If there were the equivalent of mass for what has increasingly become our military church, what would it look like? Whom and what would we say we believed in? As a lapsed Catholic with a lot of practice in my youth professing faith in the church, as well as a retired military officer and historian, he says, I have a few ideas about what such a profession might look like. We believe in wars. We may no longer believe in formal declarations of war. Not since December 1941 has Congress made one in our name, but that sure hasn't stopped us from waging them. From Korea to Vietnam, Afghanistan to Iraq, the Cold War to the War on Terror, and so many military interventions in between, including Grenada, Panama, and Somalia. Americans are always fighting somewhere as if we saw great utility in thumbing our noses at the Prince of Peace. He says, that's Jesus Christ, if I remember my Catholic catechism correctly. We believe in weaponry. The more expensive, the better. The underperforming F-35 stealth fighter may cost $1.45 trillion over its lifetime. An updated nuclear triad, land-based missiles, nuclear submarines, and strategic bombers may cost that already mentioned $1.7 trillion. New and malfunctioning aircraft carriers cost us more than $10 billion each. And all such weaponry, weaponry requests get funded with few questions asked despite a history of their redundancy, ridiculously high price, regular cost overruns, runs, and mediocre performance. Meanwhile, Americans squabble bitterly over a few hundred million dollars for the arts and humanities. He says, we believe in weapons of mass destruction. We believe in them so strongly that we're jealous of anyone nibbling at our near monopoly. As a result, we work overtime to ensure that infidels and atheists, that would be the Iranians and North Koreans among others, don't get them. 
In historical terms, no country has devoted more research or money to deadly nuclear, biological, and chemical weaponry than the United States. In that sense, we've truly put our money where our mouths are and where a devastating, devastating future might be. Now, there's some more to this article. We're going to come back to it in a few moments. If it's causing you mental pain, a little cognitive dissonance, I apologize, but I think this is worth considering. And so I will forge ahead just the other side of these messages. Stay with us. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. We are in the home stretch. It is a Wednesday edition. I'm sharing with you an article here called In Weapons and War We Trust, America's Militarized Profession of Faith. This is by William J. Astor, and it was published on LewRockwell.com today. And he's walking through a sort of uh, catechism of uh, beliefs that we have in uh, in in war and i gotta tell you he's he's pretty he's pretty on target here now this guy is he is a uh, no longer practicing catholic he is currently a retired air force officer and he nails it when it comes to to how we approach this with a religious like seal for instance we believe in our missionary with missionary zeal in our military and we seek to establish our quote faith everywhere Hence, our global network of perhaps 800 overseas military bases. We don't hesitate to deploy our elite missionaries, our equivalent to the Jesuits, the special forces operations or the special operations forces to more than 130 countries annually. Similarly, the foundation for what we like to call foreign assistance is often military training and foreign military sales. Our present Supreme Leader, Pope Trump I, boasts of military sales across the globe, most notably to the infidel Saudis. Even when Congress makes what until recently was the rarest of attempts to rein in this deadly trade in arms, Pope Trump vetoes it. His rationale, weapons and profits should rule all. We believe in our College of Cardinals, otherwise known as America's generals and admirals. We sometimes appoint them or anoint them to the highest positions in the land. While Trump's generals, Michael Flynn, James Mattis, H.R. McMaster, and John Kelly have fallen from grace at the White House, America's generals and admirals continue to rule globally. They inhabit proconsul-like positions in sweeping geographical commands that at least theoretically cover the planet and similarly lead commands aimed at dominating the digital computer realm and special operations. One of them will head a new force meant to dominate space through time eternal. A strategic command, the successor to the Strategic Air Command, or SAC, so memorably satirized in Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, continues to ensure that at some future moment... The U.S. will be able to commit mass genocide by quite literally destroying the world with nuclear weapons. Indeed, Pope Trump recently boasted that he could end America's Afghan war in a week, apparently through the mass nuclear genocide of his figure, 10 million Afghans. 
Even as he then blandly dismissed the idea of wiping that country off the face of the earth, he openly reflected the more private megalomania of those military professionals funded by the rest of us to think about the unthinkable. In sum, everything is, theoretically at least, under the thumbs of our unelected college of cardinals. Their overblown term for it is full-spectrum dominance, which in translation means they grant themselves godlike powers over our lives and that of our planet. Although the largely undefeated enemies in their various wars don't seem to have acknowledged this reality. Next, he says, we believe that freedom comes through obedience. Those who break ranks from our militarized church in protest, like Chelsea Manning, are treated as heretics and literally tortured. We believe military spending brings wealth and jobs galore when it measurably doesn't. Military production is both increasingly automated and increasingly outsourced, leading to far fewer good-paying American jobs compared to spending on education, infrastructure repairs of and improvements in roads, bridges, levees, and the like, or just about anything else for that matter. We believe, and our most senior leaders profess to believe, that our military represents the very best of us, that we have the finest one in human history. We believe in planning for a future marked by endless wars, whether against terrorism or godless states like China and Russia, which means our military church must be forever strengthened in the cause of winning ultimate victory. And finally, we believe our religion is the one true faith. Just as he says, I used to be taught that the Catholic Church was the one true church and that salvation outside it was unattainable. More Pacific religions, in quotation marks, are dismissed as weak, misguided, and exploitative. For example, the denunciation of NATO countries that refuse to spend more money on their militaries. Such a path to the future is heretical. Therefore, they must be punished. Now, that's quite a list. And I imagine there's more than a few people going, hey, that's not very fair, but... I think he's making a pretty interesting comparison and one that actually seems to stick. Especially if you just apply it to the people at the highest levels, they really do believe they are high priests in an essential religion. Unfortunately, there are a lot of us down here in the, you know, the congregation. They get chills that have that religious-like fervor for all things pertaining to the state and the emblems of its power. Now, going back to William Astor's commentary here, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers. And he says, Keep in mind that the beginning of wisdom is fear of God, or so I was taught as a boy anyway. One might say that the beginning of U.S. militarism is simply fear whether it be of terrorists, immigrants, Muslims, communists, or other enemies of the moment. If Americans continue to be racked with such fears, they'll undoubtedly continue to profess their faith in the military, as our country's noblest protectors, too. So where does such a profession of faith in wars and weapons end? Is there even a terminus of any sort other than destruction? Now, remember, this is a retired U.S. Air Force officer speaking. He says, those of us who endured war games and hair-trigger nuclear alerts during the Cold War have long had apocalyptic fears of such endings in the back of our minds. Under Donald Trump, he says they've come back with a vengeance. Unlike many Christians, I don't envision Christ returning to pick up the irradiated elect after a nuclear version of Armageddon. But that, of course, is a true worst-case scenario. 
A more likely ending is a slow-motion collapse of America's imperial empire and the church of the military that goes with it, the resulting chaos possibly leading to a second coming, not of Christ, but of medieval levels of meanness and misery. Or, he says, maybe, just maybe, we might start anew by questioning our militarized profession of faith. We might begin to realize that our warrior church isn't all it's cracked up to be. We might begin to seek meaning and salvation, not through wars and weaponry, not through generals and their admirers, not through impossible dreams of total dominance, but through compassion and a desire for global justice. He says, I confess that I long ago turned my back on the Catholic Church of my youth, but I haven't turned my back on Christianity and the wisdom it can offer. For what does it profit a country if it gains the whole world, yet loses its soul? I've got to be honest, I've never heard it put that way, but that is, that's a brilliant way to say it. And William Astor says, in our case, of, of course, it might be more appropriate to say, what does it profit a country if it gains nothing from its wars and military mindset? yet loses its soul. He says, the more we Americans profess our faith in warriors, weapons, and wars, the more we endanger our nation's collective soul. There's a reason, after all, that Jesus placed the peacemakers, not the warriors, among the children of God. I realize that that flies directly in the face of what a lot of us have been taught and what a lot of us expect, you know, when it comes to respect, you know, we, there's, there's a line we're supposed to tow. And William Astor, as a retired lieutenant colonel from the U.S. Air Force, you know, to some people that's going to sound like blasphemy. I'm not going to tell you where you have to come down, but I will tell you that I have, I have come around in my lifetime from a, a young man, you know, a kid who absolutely enjoyed playing army and watching the world at war, talking about it, you know, every week when I'd go to school, every Monday morning, my friends and I'd get together and discuss what we saw and, you know, what was the coolest, you know, gun camera footage that we saw from the night before. We thought it was the coolest thing ever. War movies. Oh, yeah. I want to watch another war movie. I want to read books about war. And it's only just in the last few years that I've really come to understand. I have been putting my faith, and I was raised, you know, in a household of faith. I've been putting way more of my faith in the arm of the flesh than I probably should have. And coming to that realization was a little bit painful, and it was quite uncomfortable, to put it mildly. But it's caused me to question some things, I think, in a good way. And this is what I've come to. We have a protector who is willing, ready, and able to protect us if we can humble ourselves enough to call upon him. And all the armies in the world cannot equal what this protector has to offer. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Blue Star Medicated Ointment gets five-star reviews from our loyal users for fast relief of the